Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's time once again for another episode of Living Hope, our weekly journey designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education for those living with pancreatic cancer. Sharing the real-life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis. With our host, she didn't rip anything out of the studio today, so I think we're good to go. Roberta, Luna, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. I'm Paul, but that's okay. I'm sorry, because <laughs> I was looking right at Tom. A couple okay. weeks ago, she pulled some wires out. We had to forego the video here, so we're going to tease her endlessly about that. Here. Of course, right. that's going to be my, my morning wake-up, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyway, <laughs> today I have Tom Morzak. I hope I said that right. Finally, with us today, back actually, he's been with us a few times, and really appreciate him coming down because it's not an easy drive. I don't think for him. I think it's quite a ways, but I do appreciate him coming in person and being here. Tom, I thank you. Can you just give us a little bit of background for those maybe who haven't caught some of the other episodes you've been on, just uh, what you're dealing with and what your connection is. Great to see you, Roberta. Thank you. Good to see you. My You're looking great, by the way. Thank you very much. My pleasure to drive down here and see you. I was diagnosed on Leap Day, February 29th, 2012. So I'm an 11-year survivor. Had the Whipple, a full course of Fulfirinox, many other adventures in the meantime. But <laughs> I've managed to piece together a wonderful life. And I love interacting with other people in the community, such as yourself and sharing my story of strength and hope i guess yeah and i think today i'm hoping it will be you know kind of educating as well as that hope and inspiration because the whipple it's not an easy procedure and the, for those of you that know the whipple procedure is actually named after dr alan whipple he was a columbian university surgeon who performed the first operation in 1935 Oh, was, I didn't know it was that long ago. I thought yeah. it was in the 50s. That was okay. quite a while ago. Wow. Yeah, hopefully my research was correct. But yeah, that's wow. quite a while. And I, I just wonder what the difference is. Is there any difference from that time to what they're doing today? Which I think there is a little bit because I understand now there's a couple of different procedures. So, so my understanding, and I'm not a doctor, just an English major, is that there are modified versions of it. So in some cases, they opt not to take part of the stomach and the duodenum, which is the upper part of the intestine. There are some modifications, but most people that I've talked to have had the full Whipple. So it's your gallbladder comes out, they take out the affected part of the pancreas, they have to rebuild the duct system, the bile duct and the pancreatic duct. They take out about a third, the lower third of the stomach and the entire duodenum. And so there's major plumbing issues that have to be dealt with on top of the trauma of having the surgery and losing part of your pancreas, which I didn't know until I got sick, turns out is pretty important in your life. <laughs> yeah, it is because we don't, I mean, again, too, I didn't realize either what it does. It uh, The pancreas has two really great functions. One is to control your sugar, your insulin, and also to help you digest food. So it's right. really important. You really kind of need that to work I, properly, I, right? I remember when I first got sick and, and I exhibited I had some pretty severe stomach pain of sort of analogous to having pancreatitis because my tumor was blocking the pancreatic duct. So I would eat, it would produce enzymes, but they couldn't go anywhere. They're sort of sitting in the pancreas and it was, I'd had this pain curve during the day. I'd get up fine, but by the time the evening came and I'd eaten a couple of times, it was really uncomfortable. And I remember my uh, internist ran a bunch of tests and called me up. And he's like, hey, Tom, it's your pancreas. Stop eating. And I thought, 
the hell's the pancreas? You know, <laughs> so what does it do? And it turns out it's super important. You can't live without it. You can't live without those two functions. Yeah, you either have to go on enzymes or and or insulin. You can become a diabetic, actually, right. a full diabetic. So when you were told that you were going to have the Whipple, what were you prepared? Did they prepare you at all, or how did they tell you about the procedure? Or did they? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the, the surgeons who, and I know a number of them now, the surgeons who do it are very technically adept. And they know how to get in there and take care of these very complicated procedures where there's a whole bunch of organs and other things that are really tight. And that's why the Whipple is so invasive, why other organs come out, part of your stomach and part of your intestines, because everything's all jammed in there. And my understanding is, you know, the basic theory is that if you have a tumor in your pancreas, there's a very good chance that cells from that can get out and can contaminate these items that are right adjacent to it. So they just go in there and take everything out. At least that's my understanding of it. And I had not been diagnosed when I had scheduled the surgery, but they had identified a mass. They hadn't done a biopsy yet, but the mass was of sufficient size that the gastroenterologist said, you know, it doesn't really matter what this is. It's going to have to come out. So I actually had met with a surgeon the morning that I had the endoscopy where they put the tube down your throat into your stomach to do the biopsy. So I was actually diagnosed probably five or six days after I'd scheduled the surgery and only knew it was a big deal. And I met with a guy who I'd been referred to through a friend who, who's a doctor and he had done hundreds and hundreds of these things. And I said, okay, this is gonna be a big deal. I'm not quite sure what it all means. And we went off to the races. So there was really no sitting down and talking to you, telling you exactly how the surgery was going to go, what, how invasive it was? Or uh, what I mean, was there's some happen? discussion of that. They'll tell you what they're going to do, but it's, you know, I hate to do this, but I often equate these surgeons with mechanics. Mm. They open the hood, they go in there and they take out the fuel pump or whatever thing they're going to do, and they put it back in, they close the hood, and great, like, <laughs> you can drive away. And... You know, having it done and having it done successfully so that you can get out of the hospital is one thing. It's all of the other things that happen after the fact that are really sort of the issue, it seems to me, because it has such a dramatic effect on how you digest food, on your bacterial health in your intestine, and then other problems that I think we'll talk about in a minute that some people have, some people don't. You know, my favorite example when I talk to new patients that are gonna have the Whipple, I always warn them of the so-called Whipple attack, which came upon me probably five, I wanna say it was five or six weeks after I had surgery. And all of a sudden it feels like there's a tiny little guy in my gut running around with a machete. And it was unbelievably painful and unbelievably scary and I had no idea what it was. Nobody warned me about that. And it turns out that there is a antispasmodic that will make it go away. At least and so you can't prevent them coming on, but at least you can prevent further ones happening because they tend to happen in streaks. You get one, you get another one 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes later. And that's what, something I always mention to patients when they're going in is you may have this incredible pain in your intestine. Here's the good thing. It's only going to last 90 seconds. So it will go away and you want to have some of this drug, which is hyoscyamine on hand, 
and you take that, you put it on your tongue, gets in your bloodstream very quick, and it'll hopefully prevent further incidents from happening that day. Nobody tells you that, right? <laughs> I think they've gotten a lot better now talking about the use of enzymes after, you know, for people that don't lose their entire pancreas, I lost about half of mine. And they just said, we're going to put you on enzymes. Nobody really explained it. It's and then it's a, you know, how many do you need? Do I really need it? Yada, yada, yada. Turns out I had some other problems. And I actually switched brands of enzymes. And even though it's exactly the same thing, those enzymes are derived from pig pancreas. The brand that I went to, which is Zenpep, everybody tends to start with Creon. I eventually, after a year of suffering with horrific bowel issues, switched to a different brand. And within three days, it changed my life. Just literally changed my life and made my life livable again in terms of not spending a couple hours a day in the bathroom. So, <laughs> or making that plan so if you go anywhere, you know where bathrooms are, right? <laughs> it was horrible. Like, I can't take a road trip because, you know, this and that. And if I'm going to go somewhere, it, yeah, it was a panic. It was horrible. You know, there's an app now for bathrooms. So you can really, that. yeah, oh. there is an app. Well, no, I'm going to recommend that to people because that, that can be an issue for a lot of us. Yeah, especially when you're traveling. And for the enzymes, it is really odd too because I was taking Visatech, which is actually is an old one, but it worked better for me than the Crayon, which is a newer one. So, right. that's what I do but it is it's something that still is really confusing because they just give you the prescription and say here's the enzymes right. take them with meals or right. it's like every time I put food in my mouth I have to take one or I have to take three or or what is it so we're still trying to figure that all out right. and I hope they can get that they're, they're getting a lot better at doing it and so programs like the one at UCLA they'll bring a nutritionist in early and they'll work with you to try to figure out okay these are typically the foods that you're gonna have problems with they try to get you on a little bit better diet. That's something that I've been battling with is not eating things that I want, eating things that I should, <laughs> and, and figuring out how those enzymes work, don't work, and, and this and that. But it, it was a multi-year process for me to sort that all out. But, you know, like with many things, and I think with now that pancreatic cancer, because of the, the apparent increase in incidence and, and, and the fact that it's likely going to become the number two cancer killer in the, in the very near future, there's a lot more resources and a lot more research, and they're figuring out much better how to deal with this stuff. And quite frankly, it just I didn't have that experience 11 years ago when I had my surgery. I didn't either. It's like trial and error, and it's still kind of, you know, you kind of have to sit around. Because like I say, you do want to enjoy your life. You do want to enjoy food. So you have to sometimes I have to sit there and think, okay, is this going to be worth what I'm going to go through after I eat it? Or right. do I need to wait and maybe do it another time? Right. So, you know, right. it, it's a big thing to go through. But how long were you in the hospital? Were you in there very long? or was it? So I was very lucky. My total hospital stay after the Whipple was six days. So I was in, and I don't know if a lot of places do this anymore. I was in the ICU for four nights where they're monitoring you constantly and this and that. And then two days in a standard room. And I believe the trigger to get me out was to have a bowel movement. I think that was the one thing that they were looking for. So that, because one of the things that often happens after a Whipple is essentially your stomach shuts down and it, it doesn't move food through because oftentimes have cut a giant chunk of it out. So it's confused for lack of a better term. I'm sure there's neurological reasons <laughs> as to what happened, but they need to get food into you and get it moving through you to demonstrate that your digestive system is functioning. That was the trigger to get me out. So six days in the hospital, and then I went home and I spent about 
five, just over five weeks on my couch, basically unable to move. It is an extremely traumatic process. So, you know, I have a eight inch scar roughly in my abdomen and they take stuff out and they rewire stuff and it's it's a big deal, yeah. right? There's just no two ways about it. It is a major surgery. And fortunately didn't have any side effects. You know, I didn't have any infections or water retention is, is happens with some frequency in your abdomen. There's all kinds of things that can happen. So fortunately I didn't have any of those, but when I got home, I just, I couldn't move. I was just the trauma of it and the body trying to recover. I was down for about six weeks. Oh. Well, it's like you said, I mean, it's like the mechanic thing, right? They're taking everything out and you're hoping to God they put everything back in the right way. Absolutely. That <laughs> the plumbing is working right. So. Absolutely. So was it, I mean, a stupid question, I'm sure, but was it, were you on the couch so long because it was so painful or just trying to readjust everything? So, and this is something I emphasize to people, pain often is not an issue. I mean, obviously you get cut open and there's pain and this and that. Many people that I've talked to and what happened to me is they have you on an epidural while you're in the hospital. And that's the first thing that goes in and the last thing that comes out. Because after a Whipple, you have tubes, feeding tubes going down your nose. You have drains coming out of you. You're sort of loaded up with tubes and in a fairly horrific way. And... You know, and I kept saying, because the epidural goes in your back, it's kind of uncomfortable. And they're like, no, that's the last <laughs> thing that comes out. Trust us. And I did. And it was wonderful. And when I got home, I think I took one pain pill after I got home, just one. And that was it. So it wasn't the pain. It was just the fact that going through that trauma, it's like being hit by a truck. It's going to take you a while to recover. And you have to be patient. And this is something I often emphasize <laughs> with people. You're a patient. I'm sorry to tell you, but that's the reality of it. Please be patient while you go through this process because it's going to take time. So six weeks I was down. I started going to work after six weeks, mainly because people who would come over and visit thought that I was going crazy staring at the same four walls. So I would go to work, but that entailed driving to work, going in, sitting at my desk and really not doing anything because I was so exhausted and then driving home. And that was my day. Literally, that was my day. I couldn't do anything else. And that trauma is why they wait typically around eight weeks to start you on chemo if you're going to have an adjuvant chemo regimen is because it takes at least that long to get your body recovered so that you can handle the essentially the trauma that goes along with having a chemotherapy regimen. Yeah, it's a little tough to go through that Whipple and then have to do the chemo on top of that. Right. So how long did you do right. chemo after your Whipple? So I did the Fulfirinox protocol, which the big study out of France had been published, I want to say about six months before I was diagnosed. And so I was an early adopter, so to speak, on that. You know, and unfortunately, and I think this is basically still the case, you have two choices, right? It's Gemzar, Gemcitabine, or Fulfirinox. The problem with Fulfirinox is that it's extraordinarily toxic. It's a four-drug cocktail. And it has a lot of side effects, and that's why a very significant percentage of people can't finish it because the side effects just overwhelm them. But I had that, and it is every two weeks for 12 rounds, so it's roughly six months. And, yeah, it's kind of an adventure. <laughs> so, you know, the side effects for me, you know, I was 49 years old when I had my surgery, so I was on the younger side of the typical pancreatic cancer patient 
and I got through it, but towards the end of it, I had pretty severe neuropathy in my hands and my feet. So like I had to be very careful about just walking. Walking was one step at a time and looking at the ground because I couldn't feel my feet. Mm -hmm. And then I couldn't feel my fingertips. So my job entails a lot of typing. That got down to one finger because I, <laughs> I couldn't feel anything. Yeah. And I had to be careful when I ate. If I was eating a sandwich, like I had to really pay attention because I'd start chewing on my fingers because I couldn't <laughs> feel them, right? So, And you have a lot of other things that happen, just overwhelming fatigue. I had a very unique response that I haven't met anybody else who had it. So the way that Fulferinox works is you go in for an infusion that takes six, seven hours roughly, and you got the bags out there and you're in a, a clinical setting, and then you're done with the main infusion and they hook you up to a trickle pump for 46 hours. So you have a trickle of one of the drugs going into you and then that finishes. And 11 out of 12 times, I would either myself or at the at City of Hope where I was having my chemo, they'd unplug me and within 30 minutes I was down. Literally would sleep for 48 hours. Just could not move. You know, getting up and going to the bathroom was a chore, right? <laughs> a major chore just to get up. But usually by so I would have the infusion on Wednesday, two days of the pump. So it was Friday night when I got unplugged and I was just on the couch, couldn't move until Sunday night, Monday morning. And I think every single time I was able to get to work on Monday. So I sort of came out of it. You could sort of feel it. Mm -hmm. It was still there, but it that dropped off significantly. And I was able to at least, you know, talk to people, which was great. How long before you actually got back to work and more like yourself? So uh, during chemo, I was starting to function at work to some extent, but I wasn't putting in, you know, I wasn't able to work the eight to 10 hours a day that I normally do. I mean, basically I lost 2012. So I got sick in January. I had surgery in early March. I finished chemo in mid-October and, but I, I was out on the golf course again in December and early December. So, but the better part of a year, I mean, it's a long process, but I was very lucky. The neuropathy went away fairly quickly, mm. probably about, I want to say five to six weeks. It was largely gone after I finished the chemo. So I have no after effects from that. The main thing that I had to deal with after the facts was figuring out what was happening with my digestive system because I had essentially diarrhea six or eight or 10 times a day. And that lasted for over a year after my surgery. And it's very trying. I mean, it was literally a couple, three hours a day in the bathroom, just flushing stuff out. It was horrible. And I went through a series of tests with the head of GI over at City of Hope to try to figure out what was going on. They thought I had bacterial overgrowth in my intestines or celiac disease. They tested for all this and that. And it turns out that changing my enzymes literally within a couple of days just wow. completely changed my life around. And the diarrhea, it didn't completely stop because that's always, I think, you know, individuals to some extent have that. But for Whipple patients and you know, between the lack of enzymes and what happens to your bacterial, your biome and your intestines, that's a long running thing to try to get that balanced out and figuring all of the food and the supplements and how that all works. It was quite a while. I hear a lot of people have had the Whipple, they refer to that as dumping. Is that what they're talking about, the diarrhea? Uh, just... Dumping is 
typically diarrhea, but it typically happens soon after you eat. And I did have that on occasion, but not regularly. So you'll literally eat and 30 minutes later it's coming out, which is obviously not normal because it's <laughs> supposed to take eight, I think eight or 10 hours to work its way through your system uh, before it comes out. And that's a fairly shocking thing because you can look and see, well, that's, that's the salad or whatever it was I just <laughs> ate. But that does happen to people. And hopefully it's an irregular occurrence and not something you have to deal with over the long term. Is that something that could be helped by the enzymes or is that just totally separate? I think that's a result of the stomach issue. Again, English major, not doctor, but I think that's what that's caused by. Because it's just, it's clearly not normal that food moves through your intestinal tract that quickly. So there's, there's musculature issues that are happening because nerves are misfiring. That's my suspicion as to why that's happening. But Most people I've talked to experienced it once or twice or a few times. I don't know how many times I had it, but certainly it happened and it's, yes, it's disconcerting, but it went away fairly quickly. Certainly I I don't recollect having that six months after. And what is it that you do for that? Is there, is it anything that you can take or anything? I'm not aware of anything. I just think it's, it happens and then you hope it doesn't happen again. Again, I didn't have to deal with it for the long term, so I'm not aware of any medication or other things that might resolve that issue. I've yet to talk to anybody that had it, you know, that it happened three times a day, every day for the course of weeks. I've never talked to anybody that had the situation. It's a more episodic situation where it happened. You mentioned your job. What is it that you do and did this interfere with being able to do that. I mean, if you're sitting there, I know sitting there at a table or like me, I'm a paralegal. So if I'm in a courtroom, it's a little hard to right. run out and go to the bathroom and then try right. to come back. So Right. So I do media for a governmental agency and, you know, it certainly impacted my ability to do my job. But one of the great things of working for the federal government is, and at least in my shop is, you know, it's, it's kind of a family thing. So I was told by my boss, I went in and said, I've been diagnosed with cancer. I have to go through this thing. I'm going to be out. And I was told, go do whatever you need to do. And whenever you come back, whenever that is, your job will be waiting for you. And we will have people backfill you. Now, did they do a very good job? No, but (laughs) what happened, what needed to happen, happened. and, And I didn't have to worry about it. And also in things, you know, in the government, I'm sure other agents other private agencies have it you know i was fortunate you know i'd I'd been with the government for geez i don't know 15 close to 15 years at this point so your sick time accumulates so you don't it's not a use or lose you know you can only carry over a certain amount of vacation time but sick leave builds up so after the course of time if you haven't been sick you know i had several months of sick time so if i needed just to be off the grid for three or four months, I would still have a paycheck coming in because I had built up sick time. And if you run out of that, you can ask your colleagues to donate vacation time. Mm. And a lot of them have tons of vacation time, particularly the people in my office because they're so busy and this and that. And so it really was, I didn't have to worry about it. I was very, very fortunate. I had a good insurance situation and I didn't have to worry about a paycheck coming in. But I didn't want to get back to work. I enjoy my job and I, and I wanted to do it. But yes, it was severely impacted for months. Mm. And 
you know, like I said, I basically lost a year. I'm going to say it was a year until I was back to peak performance where I could go in and, you know, really if I needed to work 10 hours and, and to focus on a series of projects where I could do it. You mentioned your work was like a family. Well, you know, you also have a family. How did they deal with this? Because it's like, you know, this doesn't just, a lot of people think it just affects us as a patient or survivor. It doesn't. It's a, it affects the whole family. It, there's no question about it. I'm, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Is A, it's very traumatic. And I think it was more traumatic for my wife and daughter than it was for me. You know, I, the psychology of me dealing with it was very unique to me. And I dealt with it on a sort of a day-by-day basis. It's like, okay, I don't feel well, so I go to the doctor. And the doctor tells me this, which means I need to go to another doctor. And that doctor looks at me, and then I need to have a test. And it's, you know, over the course of days, you have these little chores. And that's how I approached it. I didn't say, oh, I'm sick, I have cancer. I knew that was a possible, you know, within a fairly short period of time, I knew that was a possibility, but I didn't really think about it until I got the phone call saying, okay, the biopsy was positive. And it wasn't a huge shock, obviously a tremendous bummer. And that does like really shake up your sense of reality and this and that. But I went through the process and it literally did not dawn on me until a year and a half or maybe two years after my surgery that like, I, you know, I could die. Like, this could kill me. And it kills many people. It just never entered my consciousness. So I was very lucky in terms of whatever psychosis I have to be able to go through that mentally. But my daughter, who was nine years old, I think, at the time when I got diagnosed, and, you know, daddy has cancer. And that is a horrible thing to hear. It's a horrible thing to hear for you and for your loved ones to say oh he has cancer and you know and it's pancreatic cancer so you know that's not a good thing right you know i used to joke when they wanted to kill somebody off quickly on tv they give them pancreatic (laughs) cancer and they're gone the next episode right (laughs) so caregivers the importance the power and the impact on caregivers i don't think can be understated you know i couldn't feed myself for the first few months And then the stress of a caregiver with a pancreatic cancer patient because they don't want to eat. They're not hungry. They can't, in some cases, keep the food down, whatever. In my case, it was just, I don't want to eat. And particularly when I had, when I was undergoing chemo, it wasn't that I was nauseous and throwing up. I didn't have any of that. It was just the thought of eating sounded so stupid. Why would any, I may as well bang a spike into my head, right? So... And my wife would prepare these things. She's like, oh, how about this? And how about that? And it would show up and I'd look at it and be like, God, no, I can't do this. (laughs) And so all the stress and and strain that goes on top of it, I'm trying to take care of this person and I literally can't feed them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my love and admiration for my family for seeing me through it because I couldn't have done it without them. It's just unbounded. And that applies to any caregiver out there dealing with a situation as traumatic as this. And everybody knows, because everybody gets on Google and takes a look when you get something like this. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you see are statistics and sort of the epic badness of this whole thing. And then they're like, okay, maybe you have the surgery and you're going through chemo and you're having, you know, not a great day. And you literally have to eat. I mean, I lost 45 pounds in like three months as a result of what I went through. So I was substantially smaller than I am now. And quite frankly, I was kind of scary looking yeah. for a while yeah. when you go days on end, basically not eating. 
and it's a huge stress and strain. And so when I talk to caregivers, I always remind them, and I think this is particularly a problem with women, they take a lot on themselves, you know, I'm going to take care of everything, is that caregivers have to remember that, you know, they can only do so much and they have to take care of themselves. They can't just burrow into this and do nothing else. You have to take care of yourself because if you're damaged because of the stress and strain and everything and the fear that goes along with it, if you're compromised in some way, then you can't be a caregiver. You can't be a caregiver to the effectiveness that you want to be. That's super important. Uh, very much so. And being both sides of the fence, being the patient and the caregiver for my mom and dad, it, being the caregiver is much, much tougher, I think. It seems to me it is, too. You <laughs> it, know? Yeah, it really, really was hard yeah. for every, everything you said. And I want to thank you for coming back and talking. I really want you to come back again because there's still a lot more to talk about, about the Whipple and the, the effects of it and everything that you go through. Because, you know, I have a lot of questions. People are popping in, but we'll have to deal with that at another time. And hopefully. I'd be happy to. Well, again, we'd love to have you come back. And I know I asked you, as long as you speak my name, I shall live forever is dedicated. Do you have anybody that you would like to dedicate well, it to? Well, I was thinking yesterday that I'd like to dedicate this to Julie Weiss. Oh, you know, Perfect. Julie, who has been so impacted by it, but has been such an awesome advocate and raising the profile and getting the message out. She's just she's done great work for so many years now. So I want to dedicate this to Julie Weiss. Julie Weiss is also known as the marathon goddess. She yes. ran 52 marathons in one year. Yep. That's a marathon a weekend. Yep. And also known that, as crazy <laughs> and went to work on Monday after doing mm -hmm. that. So, yes, thank you for dedicating that. Julie Weiss is a perfect choice, a marathon goddess. I love her to pieces. And, you know, she has her signature thing that she does with the hands out and stuff. So thank you, Julie, for everything you do. She lost her dad to pancreatic cancer and has really turned that into an amazing thing to help all of us. So thank you, Julie. Thank you, Tom, again, for being here. And we want to have you come back. have it one more reason to tune in each and every time to our weekly journey we call living hope providing hope inspiration and education for those living with pancreatic cancer sharing the real life stories of those really affected and if you'd like more information if you need more than a story you need a hand to help or a place to guide you lots of resources let's start with uh 8772 pancan that's 877 to P-A-N-C-A-N for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. For the OC Talk Radio Network, I'm Paul Roberts. Thanking you for joining us. Hoping you'll share this story with somebody who needs to hear it. And hoping you'll tune in each and every time as we continue the journey together right here in Orange County's only community radio station. Streaming live from our studios here at the University of California, Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center. <laughs>